This week, Judge Isker denies Altameza stalking horse bitter. Borden Dairy files Freefall Chapter 11. EP Energy debtors reach agreement in principle with UCC. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hi, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm reporter Connor Skelding. And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, the America's team plus Covenant's chief, Peter Washkowitz, will drill deep into California resources. It's Sunday, January 12th. A tumultuous hearing in the Alta Mesa bankruptcy cases culminated with Judge Marvin Isger ultimately denying the debtor's request for approval of their designation of BCE Mach 3, an affiliate of pre-petition equity holder Bayou City Energy, as stalking horse bidder. Earlier in the hearing, Judge Isger indicated in a tentative ruling that he was prepared to approve that designation, except with respect to releases of Bayou City required under the, the bid stating that he would not approve the proposed breakup fee in the event that the releases are ultimately rejected at the sale hearing, and BCE Mach 3 walks away from the deal as a result. Judge Isger also stressed that he had heard, quote, zero specific evidence of wrongdoing of Bayou City, but noted that there has been, quote, innuendo about past wrongdoings, and that there may be some, quote, meat on those bones. As a result, to the extent the court ultimately gets there in terms of concluding that the releases are unwarranted, Judge Isger explained that he did not want the, quote, albatross of the breakup fee hanging around his neck. However, after a break for deliberations, counsel to BCE Mach 3 said that his clients were not willing to walk away, quote, and get sued in the event the requested releases were not approved, and instead proposed that the court grant expense reimbursement in that eventuality, capped at 1.5% of the purchase price. That'd be half of the current breakup fee. Despite the debtor's support for BCE Mach 3's proposition, Judge Isger balked at that counteroffer, instead denying the stocking horse designation entirely. The evening before that hearing, the Davis Polk advised ad hoc group of Ultimesa note holders formally disclosed and submitted their own $310 million bid for the assets of both the Ultimesa debtors and their non-debtor affiliate, Kingfisher Mainstream, arguing in filings that it, quote, indisputably provides greater value than the BCE Mach 3 bid. At the hearing, Judge Isker had determined that the economics of this rival bid were slightly superior than those of the BCE Mach 3 bid. However, not enough to overturn the debtor's business judgment regarding the process. In an objection filed ahead of the hearing, the lender group described the process as, quote, deeply flawed and, quote, highly expedited, simultaneously arguing that the proposed allocation of sale proceeds to Kingfisher is, quote, the result of insider settlement negotiations. The UCC, in its objection, expressed support for the ad hoc proposal, noting that while it relies on the same $310 million total purchase price as the stocking horse bid, the ad hoc proposal nonetheless, quote, appears to be higher and better in, quote, several key respects, including not requiring a breakup fee or other bid protections and requiring the release of, quote, potentially valuable estate claims against Bayou City and its affiliates. Dallas-based Borden Dairy, known across the nation for its iconic mascot, Elsie the Cow, filed a free-fall bankruptcy on Sunday evening in Delaware with about $260 million of funded debt. According to the first-day declaration of CFO Jason Monaco, the bankruptcy was commenced to, quote, 
preserve and maximize Borden's enterprise value for the benefit of its stakeholders in the face of an impending liquidity shortfall and significant industry headwinds. The debtors added that overwhelming debt burden and a host of industry trends, including a rapidly changing, highly competitive and dynamic industry landscape, had made it increasingly difficult for the debtors to hold their margin. They also say that with the rise of alternative milk products, such as oat milk, hemp milk, and nut milk, the industry is facing, quote, shrinking consumption of fluid milk, while the price of conventional raw milk has risen 27% since January 2019. The debtors entered bankruptcy with no funding and no exit plan. The filing follows a 2017 out-of-court restructuring transaction under which Borden and certain of its subsidiaries entered into an RSA that placed the company under a new holding company and saw an equity investment by Acon. As part of the transaction, the company also established a reserve account which it has used to pay periodic settlement payments on account of certain pension liabilities and which it now seeks to access in order to fund the bankruptcy cases. Pre-petition, and notwithstanding the debtors and their pre-petition lenders' entry into a forbearance agreement, the parties were unable to finalize and implement an out-of-court restructuring, and the debtors' lenders were unwilling to further extend the forbearance period and provide necessary liquidity, the debtors said. KKR Credit Advisors, as lenders under the debtors' pre-petition term loan B facility, filed a blistering objection to Borden's cash collateral motion and other first-day pleadings, alleging that the debtors filed for bankruptcy notwithstanding an almost, quote, fully baked out-of-court restructuring deal in hand that included a forbearance extension. The debtors sought to use their lenders' cash collateral on a non-consensual basis, which proved to be the sole focus of the debtors' first-day hearing. At the contentious first day hearing, at which the parties clashed over the cash collateral motion, the lenders demanded the appointment of a chief restructuring officer and argued that the debtors had failed to provide them with certain, quote, fundamental information necessary to conduct diligence on the cash collateral request. Judge Christopher Sanchi ultimately granted the debtors' first day motions, including a modified version of the cash collateral order that provided the lenders with adequate protection from the diminution of value of their cash collateral. In a busy week for the EP Energy Chapter 11 cases, the debtors appear to have removed one hurdle to confirmation, reaching an agreement in principle with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors that would resolve the UCC's plan-related objections. The announcement came at a hearing on Wednesday, shortly after the debtors filed a third amended plan of reorganization and disclosure statement. The revised plan and DS, which do not yet reflect the UCC settlement, outlined the debtors' rejection of the ad hoc group's alternative restructuring proposal, dated December 31st, stating that after review, the special committee determined that it was, quote, not worthwhile to pursue the proposal for, quote, numerous reasons, including its failure to, quote, maximize value for creditors. The revised DS also indicated that, prior to its filing, the ad hoc group and the UCC provided separate confidential proposals for changes to the plan that they would support. However, counsel for the debtors announced during Wednesday's hearing that the outstanding DS objections of the UCC and ad hoc noteholder group had been resolved. Further, debtors' counsel stated that an agreement had been reached, quote, in principle, addressing the UCC's plan-related objections, describing the deal as, quote, a good path forward. The terms include a $25 million rights offering, open only to unsecured claims, as well as the receipt of 1.75% of reorganized equity by unsecured claimants, among other things. On the island of Puerto Rico, 
in the wake of a series of earthquakes that have rattled the island over the past several weeks. The Promesa Oversight Board on Tuesday sent a letter to AFAF Executive Director Omar Marrero approving the Commonwealth's request for access to the emergency reserve funds from fiscal year 2019 and 2020 to cover emergency expenses related to the earthquakes. Also on Tuesday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an opinion denying the renewed motion of certain of the ERS bondholders seeking to be appointed as trustees under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code for the purpose of prosecuting certain avoidance actions. The bondholders' motion also included the alternative request of the appointment of a third party as trustee to pursue such claims, with the trustee's fees and expenses to be paid by ERS. The motion was opposed by the Promesa Oversight Board, AFAF, and the Official Retiree Committee. In reaching her conclusion, Judge Swain held that the Oversight Board, quote, has been given the responsibility of balancing and prioritizing the relevant issues and concerns in developing fiscal arrangements and plans of adjustment, and is entitled to a measure of deference in carrying out this responsibility. Judge Swain also found that the Oversight Board's unwillingness to pursue the claims pleaded in the bondholder's proposed complaint is neither unjustified nor unreasonable. In response, the Jones Day and White and Case-represented ERS bondholder group has appealed the opinion seeking Third Circuit review. Also in the Puerto Rico Title III cases, the Lawful Constitutional Debt Coalition, or LCDC, filed an omnibus claim objection on Wednesday in the Commonwealth's Title III case challenging certain Commonwealth GO bonds, PBA bonds, PRIFA bond anticipation notes, and Ports of America's authority bonds, collectively referred to as the late vintage bonds, on the basis that they were issued in excess of the debt limit set forth in the Puerto Rico Constitution. The official Committee of Unsecured Creditors also filed an additional omnibus claim objection on Wednesday, challenging certain miscellaneous claims, saying that they are based on notes or guarantees that were issued in violation of the debt service limit under the Puerto Rico Constitution. Other top stories last week were, Rite Aid announces exchange offer for up to $600 million of its secured notes due 2023 for 7.5% notes due 2025. Frontier seeks NDAs from unsecured bondholders to review business plan, develop restructuring proposal. And PG&E files amended motion for approval of more than $1 billion in potential backstop fees for $46.35 billion in plan funding commitments. And as usual, now to the great Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Thank you, Alex, as always, for that very graceful introduction. And we definitely shook off the holiday doldrums last week. And it looks like no end of high drama in store for the week that draws nigh. I'm sure you may have noticed that the bumping crude obtained following hit on General Soleimani has similarly expired. Still holding around the 60 contacts last time I checked, so that's good. And in that spirit, we begin Monday... January 13th with a hearing on EP Energy's revised disclosure statement and also expecting a Chapter 11 filing from Kingfisher, the Alta Mesa midstream arm for which Riverstone and Jim Hackett had such high hopes not too long ago. Anyways, on to Tuesday, January 14th, make whole allowance an omnibus hearing for PG&E, the utility for the state of California, which has suffered a considerable outflow of population. Can't imagine why. A lot of them have ended up in my neck of the woods, or rather, 
I should say, the very hot, humid, mosquito-ridden bayous of South Texas, which you ain't going to like, so I'm guessing y'all are headed to Massachusetts. Or why not try Philadelphia? Brotherly love, y'all like that sort of thing. Speaking of Philadelphia, Philadelphia Energy Solutions has oral arguments related to insurance collateral. Wednesday, January 15th, it's Alta Mesa again with an auction in Kingfisher Rejection Status Conference, UCC Formation Meeting in Borden Dairy, and a second day hearing in High Ridge. And it's that time of the month. McDermott reaches a forbearance expiration. California Resources has a coupon due on its 5% of 2020. There are coupons due from Feral Gas, Frontier, and McClatchy. Thursday, January 16th, a potential, excuse me, revised plan filing by the PG&E debtors, confirmation hearing in INSYS, and an omnibus hearing in Windstream. Friday, January 17th, auction in Philadelphia Energy Solutions, and we have early tender deadlines for right aid and superior energy. And that's all from me, and now California. California again. You know, in the family records, there is a cryptic reference to my great-great-great-great-uncle Marcellus, who died in 1871 on a train to California. Well, it seems opportunities in central Alabama were at the time somewhat limited for some reason, so Uncle Marcellus had been looking to extend his liquidity runway, I guess you'd put it, through an equity investment from the Wells Fargo strong box located on said train. So there is always some question about whether he was escorted from this veil of tears by the railroad guards or maybe by the Sioux once he made his escape. Anyways, on that note, here Mark Fisher, Mark Gardner, and Peter Washkowitz to tell you all about California resources. Gentlemen, over to y'all. Thanks, Jim. Uh, so I'm here with Mark Gardner and Peter Washkowitz. So we're going to talk about California resources, which has been on uh, a lot of people's minds as of um, as of late. Pretty big capital structure here, almost uh, six billion dollars in debt. Uh, had some people on the edge of their seats last month um, ahead of a um, a coupon payment, which they ended up uh, making. There's also a um, a small maturity, uh, I believe, next week, um, but. The big stuff hits, and what people um, are uh, are talking about is in 2021 uh, when um, the big chunks of their debt um, uh, begin to mature. Uh, people are questioning um, how sustainable this capital structure is. So uh, let's let's take a look. I've got, um, like I said, Mark uh, here um, going to talk us through the financials. Peter going to talk us through uh, through the covenants. Uh, so let's dig into this. Um, California uh, oil and, uh, and and gas company. Um, Mark, um, w- wanted to start with you, and uh, you know before we dig into some of the financials, um, you know we all some speculation has been on um, on asset sales about companies' ability to um, you know to raise. Um, uh, raise cash. Uh, they have been active, and we've spoken about it before on this podcast. Um, ways that they have um, used uh, third parties to uh, to raise money. Can you walk us through um, some of the ways that they've gotten creative in the past? Yeah, uh, definitely. So some of the financing methods that uh, CRC has used to raise capital and to maintain development of its oil and gas properties in a low oil price environment. Their joint ventures. So uh, these joint ventures include Benefit Street Partners, Aries, Colony Capital, and Macquarie Infrastructure. Um, I'll, I'll briefly recap these joint ventures uh, just to refresh everyone's memory. In, 
April 2017, uh, CRC had announced that they had a joint venture uh, development, joint venture with Macquarie uh, Infrastructure and Real Assets, where Macquarie would invest up to about $300 million to develop certain oil uh, in exchange for a 90% working interest in the properties. Um, Macquarie would fund 100% of those costs, while CRC would maintain a 10% working interest uh, that 10% working interest would have the ability to be 5% if Macquarie receives uh, cash distributions up to a, a certain threshold. Um, so similar to the Macquarie uh, JV, uh, in February 2017, CRC also a uh, development joint venture with Benefit Street Partners, uh, whereby Benefit Street would contribute up to $250 million um, but this time in exchange for a preferred interest in the JV. And uh, Benefit Street was entitled to preferred And if it receives cash distributions equal to a predetermined threshold, then the preferred interest is automatically redeemed in full uh, with no additional payment. Um, and then if we, we look forward more recently, uh, July of last year, uh, 2019, CRC announced a development JV with Colony Capital, where Colony has committed to fund $320 million over three years, 100% uh, of the development cost, and will have a 90% working interest. Uh, CRC's working interest will revert from 10% to 82.5% upon Colony achieving the agreed upon return. Although CRC has been doing these uh, development JVs, uh, also last year they did do an asset sale uh, in May of 2019, where they sold a 50% working interest and transferred operating zones in its Lost Hills field in the San Joaquin Basin uh, for excess of $200 million, which consisted of about $168 million in cash and a carried 200 well development program uh, 2023. Um, so the cash proceeds CRC used to pay down the revolver. Um, prior to 2019, CRC raised even more cash through a different type of JV structure development or than a traditional asset sale. It did it through a midstream joint venture with Aries. So on uh, February, in uh, February 7th, 2018, CRC had entered into a midstream joint venture, Aries Portfolio Company, that invested $750 million into Elk Hills Power uh, in exchange for common and preferred equity interest in the venture. The JV owns a 550 megawatt natural gas fire and a 200 million cubic foot per day cryogenic gas processing plant. Uh, located in Tubman, California. So the, the JV uh, distributed a portion of the $739 million in cash to sources, uh, where California Resources used that to repay uh, $297 million of uh, its outstanding revolver balance and uh, used the other portion to, to uh, make an acquisition uh, so, and the uh, the preferred equity interest in that uh, Elk Hills JV requires the JV to make monthly distributions based on its uh, $750 million investment and a 13.5% annual rate. 
um, which we, we've mentioned in a prior podcast. Great. So now let's talk about what um, what they can do, uh, what they've um, discussed. I, w- I, w- I want to start with some of their comments and what we reported uh, to sort of set the table. And, um, you know, so this is a uh, one of those um, complicated capital structures or multi-level capital structures um, with uh, one and a quarter lien, one and a half lien, second lien uh, between a billion and two billion um, in each of those uh, tranches and all maturing uh, between late 2021 and um, and late 2022. So the company is actually, um, you know, they, they've uh, tried to chip away at their capital structure at times. Um, year to date, they've been buying back um, second, uh, or, or sorry, not year to date, last year uh, to date through the third quarter, um, which is the last time they reported, they were chipping away at their capital structure, buying back um, some second lien um, debt in the open market. Uh, we've also um, reported on um, working with Perella Weinberg, one and a half lien, one and a quarter lien lender group working with Davis Polk and um, and Evercore. But Mark, the the company has said uh, made some comments as well about um, some things they uh, they they might do, and also what the relationship is with um, with with financial advisors too. They had um, put it um, they they had amended uh, one of their agreements um, earlier in the year. I think it was in September, and made some comments around that. Uh, do you want to share what what they have said? Yeah. So, he publicly stated in September that it was actively looking at asset sales, royalty monetization, and other transactions uh, similar to those that it has done in the past to help the company delever. Um, GRC had 8K filing um, on that on August 28th, it had entered into an amendment to its agreement, uh, to its credit agreement, to provide the company with flexibility in connection with specify a royalty interest transaction. The uh, CEO, uh, Todd Stevens, shortly after that amendment, uh, you know, was disclosed. He stated at a conference presentation in September that the company's recent credit agreement amendment capped the every amount of royalty transactions after the amendment at $600 million. Um, so that's where we are uh, today, kind of like in, in actually seeing what options I guess they've kind of like telegraphed and how they want to, uh, you know, take or, or raise capital. Great. So now let's uh, turn to Peter. Um, thanks for, for joining us. And uh, why don't you tell us like what, you know, I know you get a lot of questions on this one. Uh, what is it that they can do? You know, what, what is your review of their docs uh, suggest? Uh, yeah. Uh, hi, Mark. Uh, hi, both Marks. Um, so th- these these documents are actually they're very co- they're probably uh, some of the most complicated documents I've uh, I've actually ever looked at. Um, as you said, there's a one and a quarter. There's like a one and a half. Secondly, notes a first lien revolver, and then some unsecured notes. Um, so I, I mean, I guess kind of to summarize, the the, the revolver gives them some flexibility. Um, you know, through that amendment they did, you know, they can funnel some proceeds downstream um, and use proceeds to repay the term loans. Um, so you know, that's fine. Um, on the company's last few uh, earnings calls, they have said that they also have a two hundred million dollar. Um, 
prepayment uh, uh, capacity under their documents to purchase, you know, either the one and a half lien uh, term loan, the second lien notes, or the unsecured notes. Um, so that's all pretty straightforward. Um, where it gets really complicated is in the relationship between the one and a half and the uh, one and a quarter lien uh, notes. Uh, so I'm sorry, term loans. So what it does is um, the one and a quarter term loan allows California Resources to take assets to take a portion of asset sale proceeds and use that to repay um, either the second uh, the one and a half lien term loan or the second lien notes. However, it requires that any uh, prepayments um, you know of the one and a half lien term loan has to be made at the low par prices. Um, you know, I guess that you know makes sense if you're a one and a quarter uh, lien lender. However, um, where it gets very um, it's very strange that uh, these documents have this in the one and a half lien uh, term loan, and as is customary in all term loans, um, if the California Resources is going to mandatorily prepay the one and a half lien term loan with asset sale proceeds, it has to do so at par. So you you have this uh, situation where the money is kind of stuck. The the one and a quarter requires you allows you to use asset sale proceeds to repay the one and a half lien, but it has to be a below par. The one and a half lien says that if you repay me with asset sale proceeds, you have to pay me at par. So you know they're going to violate either the one and a quarter or one and a half lien if they try to use asset sale proceeds to repay the one and a half lien term loan. That's that, that's interesting. Quite a conundrum. Um, so we'll see, yeah we'll 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 see um, you know, we'll we'll see what they do and let's 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 talk let's go back to Mark um, and talk about. Um, I guess what sort of sense of urgency um, there is here. Certainly, oil prices have been somewhat volatile over the last uh, few weeks, um, up and uh, down. And just want to get a sense here of, of cash flows and then sustainability here, which um, you know, in EMP land is you can measure by if production's uh, you know growing, shrinking, or, or staying the same. So if you look over the last recent periods, Mark, as um, what's cash flow uh, done, and where as uh, as production, uh, what's your tra- the trajectory on production? Right. So over the course of uh, how. Kind of- has performed. They've they've actually uh, been probably been able to actually not have production uh, fall off so much since they've actually uh, decided to to cut back. So you know, so capex and again, uh, you know, including obviously JVs um, like the the Benefit Street one, which is consolidated in their their numbers. Uh, their actual production rate gone to about 131, so 131 uh, thousand, uh, you know, barrels of oil equivalent per day uh, on an LPM basis this year from a fiscal, you know, 2018 rate of uh, about 132 thousand. Oh, wow. uh, so yeah, so not. So not really a huge change uh, yet in, in terms of that. Um, the the hard part is separate um, kind of like out the the actual cash flows to, to see how CRC is on a standalone basis. One one question that we um, you know have uh, heard or, or gotten in in terms of kind of like how was California Research able to buy back um, 
you know, that debt that they did in the third quarter, uh, well, one of the benefits that they actually had was they had a working capital uh, inflow of about $107 million, you know, during the third quarter. And they, because their bonds were trading so, uh, so much lower, you know, than, than par, they, they only paid, I think, about uh, $90 million, like out of pocket to actually, I think it was about um, $150 million. So, so, yeah, so while, while the, the liquidity situation with the revolver um, in, in terms of what they have access to and their actual cash flow situation kind of remains to be tight uh, relative to oil prices, it's, you know, there's not, they don't have, other than uh, a liquidity situation, they don't really have uh, large maturity coming up. Um, they, like you've mentioned before, they have the maturity next week for the unsecured notes, um, which is, is, you know, small relative to the, the size of the capital structure. Um, but uh, assuming the company kind of extend the runway uh, and able to get uh, royalty transactions like they've, you know, been talking about or some other a way to shore up cash, uh, it seems like they would have a, a longer runway to go unless oil. Uh, far below, uh, kind of like where they are. I see. Yeah, but um, but but in terms of that runway, it's um, uh, there. There is a, that springing maturity, though, um, which um, uh, you know. I guess you're you're, you're talking about sort of um, you know day to day. But then there's that maturity is September thirtieth, uh, um, I believe, twenty twenty one. Whereas the springing maturity, and then a lot of the debt um, after uh, after that. But um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens with with oil prices. Uh, you know, here too, because um, it could be beneficial if oil goes up. Obviously, it could be bad if oil goes up. One hundred thirty thousand uh, barrels of oil a day. You know, every dollar uh, change in oils um, should have um, you know somewhat of a meaningful effect um, on these on these results. So, um, guys, thank you, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mark, Peter. This is uh, this has been great, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Connor, back to you. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As we say every week, uh, you can find all of our podcasts on our media page on reorg.com or iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelting. <laughs>